This is the word of God from Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. These two verses contain a phrase that you have heard from this pulpit many times. Everyone complete in Christ. It's on a lot of our church leadership's documents that guide us because it lies at the center of our senior pastor's vision for what this church is meant to be, what our goal is in life. And it lies at the center of many ministers, including the Apostle Paul's mission and vision in life. And so this morning, knowing that this is so central to our senior pastor's mission and vision for us, I'm grateful for the chance to explain and apply what these words mean for us. So we're gonna dig into it quite a bit, short verses, a lot of depth, I hope. But I also want us to experience the centrality of these verses. And some of us have already gotten to do that. You helped send 30 young adults to the Urbana Student Missions Conference where we encountered the centrality of presenting everyone complete in Christ for our lives where young adults and church leaders, 16,000 of us got to sit at the feet of the Lord, the teaching of the word, and to engage with God, asking him where he would send us in the world, whether here or far away. And I'm happy to report to you that many of our young adults, those that went with us, made very significant, very specific commitments to follow Jesus anywhere, some to very specific places in the world for lengthy amounts of time. That's what this conference does for us. It recenters our lives. It asks us to give everything away for the sake of a singular vision that we get in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And the whole passage, even the verses that surround these two short verses, they ask us this one question. What goal would ever be worth all of your life's energy? What goal would ever be worth all your life's energy? It was there at Urbana that we encountered a woman that we will call Sarah. One evening, we were told on the screens, no social media, no Twitter, no Instagram, because what you put out on the internet could very well jeopardize the very lives of the people that are about to speak tonight. You could feel the hush in a crowd of 16,000 it got heavy as Sarah took the stage to tell us of the work that she's been doing in Iran, and we're happy to share that with you now. When I was released from prison, many Christians told me I leave my country. But God spoke to me, do not leave this land. I will be here with you. 
because the first year of my ministry, he promised me, I told you, he wanted to give me seven churches. But um, five years ago, I planted six of them, and he told me, you have one more town to, um, to plant it. So I, and he told me that, go back to your city. Police told me that my, I, I cannot go um, to that city, it's forbidden for me. But God told me that, do not fear, I open that city for you. There is one more church, you have to go and plant. I was really scared, but I obeyed the Lord and I went and I planted. Praise the Lord, that church is still growing. Amen. Amen. On the day of my arrest, they were about to send, send us to, um, to, sell, to, um, to our cell, when suddenly my friend, who is normally so quiet, she stood up from her chair, and she looked at the guard, and she said, at the end, we will have the victory. And I was like, oh God, please, what she's talking about? Please close her mouth, what she's doing? And I was praying, Lord, please. And again, she repeated this, at the end, we will have the victory. But looking back, I see she was right because many people after their persecution in my country, they gave their heart to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you Jesus has all the authority. Jesus alone has the authority. This is the truth. Yes, there is valley, but in the valley he is still in authority. I have experienced that authority in one of the darkest prisons in Iran. My message to you, believe in his authority. Live under that authority. Is that the best place to be? Thank you. <clears throat> These are the kinds of lives to which we were exposed at Urbana. And when you meet folks like this, it puts things in perspective. All your excuses go away and you're just left there facing the question of faith and obedience unto God. And so I ask again, what goal would ever be worth all of your life's energy that you would give everything over to it? And so we come to these verses where we have this phrase, this goal, everyone complete in Christ, and it's worth unpacking the meaning of these words. In order to do this, we're going to start with the word Everyone. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to need them. We'll be looking around in this passage just a little bit. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1468. There in verse 28, presenting everyone complete in Christ. What does everyone mean? It seems simple, doesn't it? But I think Paul had to say it, and he had to explain himself, and it bears repeating so that we, this morning, we have to do a theology of everyone. That's what we're going to do this morning, a theology of everyone. When I'm not here uh, meeting with folks, I'm over at Fuller doing some theology, and we need to do a theology of this word, everyone. He uses this phrase, everyone, three times. In the original language, it's a phrase, and it's used here 
And only one other place, really, in the New Testament in the same way, John chapter 1, verse 9, at the very beginning of the book of John, where the gospel writer explains to us that the light has come into the cosmos, into the world. God so loved this world, this cosmos. And the light came to everyone, putting the world and the fullness of humanity, all of us together this way. Everyone has a cosmic, global scope. Everyone. And that's what Paul means here. It's important to say it because sometimes when people say everyone, they actually don't mean everyone. So Paul clarifies, he says, the Gentiles too, the nations, this gospel, this cosmic Jesus who created everything, in whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, and at whose feet all things will be reconciled, this cosmic Jesus is for everyone. And it is not safe to assume that we know what this simple word, everyone, means. It had to be said then, and it needs to be said today, that sometimes, and this is partially true, when we hear the word everyone, we think, I am so glad that even I can be reconciled unto God. Such a foul sinner as I, even I can be reconciled to God. And this is a glorious truth that there's no one out of God's reach. But when we become so focused on the I as a part of everyone, all of a sudden we need to confess that it becomes very easy to forget that they are precious to God as well. Yes, it's true, God came for me, but he came for my enemies. And he loves them, par excellence, he loves them well, unlike me, who has too many enemies. The theology of everyone tells us, yes, even they, the least expected, even they, the ones you don't even know exist, yes, even they, Jesus came for them. So we confess today that there are many ways in which we overlook and neglect them, whoever they are, for you. Whenever we turn on the news in 2016, we will be confronted with this us-them division. It's going to be quite a year. It's going to be quite a year. The polarization in this country is so strong. And then we turn our eyes inward to our congregation and ask about the polarization there. In fact, this is so important to us that we will remain a united body of Christ that in my new role as pastor of missional outreach here at the church, it seems important to me that we have some training on what it means to participate in our country's political system while remaining united. In fact, we're going to bring a speaker, Dr. Vincent Baycoat is going to come and help us. He's been doing a lot of thinking on what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, in a polarized and political world so that he might help us answer the question, 
How do we love God and love others more, not less, more and better in a polarized political climate like ours? So there, in February 7th, in the morning and at lunch, we'll be together talking about that so that we can love each other. We confess today that that's going to be difficult as the year wears on. But it's not just that. That's easy pickings. That's low on the shelf, politics. Let me dig a little deeper for us. Brothers and sisters, there's neighborhoods that we drive around, that we dare not go into, even to bring the gospel, the light of the gospel, which is the light of the world. There are places in the world that we're afraid to send our children, even to take the gospel and proclaim it there. There's people whose suffering we dismiss so we don't have to question our own comfort, not even to proclaim the gospel to people who thirst for it. You see, something happens to our spirituality the more comfortable I get. Something happens to my theology of everyone. I'll say it this way. There's a question that the Bible asks that the more I... I'm comfortable the less I like this question. This is the question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes and Pharisees ask. Now, people love to grab onto this verse and take it out of context and use it for their own purposes, especially folks who wash their hands of the church. They're done, and they say, look at your Lord Jesus. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. How about you, you hypocrites? Well, sometimes we deserve that. But when they wash their hands of the people who are trying to follow their Lord Jesus Christ, oh, the arrogant, hypocritical irony of dismissing the people of God, thinking that they've caught the church in its sin. Oh, the arrogance of dismissing your enemy. Well, it's not really the question so much as the answer that really gives us the most trouble. <clears throat> Here Jesus says in answer to the scribes and Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus, in those words, has a way of saying something deeply meaningful about everyone. Did Jesus come for everyone? Yes, of course. But not in such a way that Jesus can not say something specific about those who he came to rescue. The sick, he says. Blessed are the poor, he says. The sinners, he says, I have come to seek and save. Not in a generic way does he love us, but in a way specific and powerful and target enough for us to name even groups of people that he came to love. This weekend, we named some groups that are precious to Jesus in that specific way. On this Martin Luther King weekend, we remember that those who are caught in the grips of poverty, who experience the ravages of racism and the desolation of war, 
Jesus loves them in a specific and powerful and effective way. Jesus is the answer for them as he sends his people to a world that's hurting. You see, the gospel is powerful and specific enough to address the world's greatest problems. It's not so generic that we cannot call out the specific problems of the world. Dr. King knew this. He gave his life for this, that a community would be born in obedience to the word of God, living by the way of Jesus. This Sanctity of Life weekend, the words of life extend to the unborn, these precious lives that Jesus cares for. And there are signs in this congregation this morning that folks who have been kicked to the side, who've been shoved to the margins of our society, who have been rejected, that Jesus loves them because he loves us. And one way to measure your nearness unto the heart of God is to ask yourself whether when he brings someone close, does it thrill your heart? Do you rejoice when brothers and sisters are set free from sin? Do you long for brothers and sisters to be delivered from the ravages of poverty? Does your heart long for the persecuted church to be vindicated in the victory of Jesus? Do you strenuously contend, verse 29, so that we can be united at Jesus' throne? Or are you just strenuously contentious? I was talking to a brother this week. I've talked to many folks this week asking for perspective on the church, on this word. And the theme that came across as I was talking to members of this church was that it's not enough. In fact, it is very difficult to only participate in the war of words when in fact we know we have communities that are underserved here. We know that there are mothers that need our help. We know that there are tangible, practical issues that we can participate in. We know that the Women's Pregnancy Care Clinic is right here, just north of us. And they deserve a visit from us. They deserve our encouragement and our prayer. They deserve our giving so that we can love mothers and their unborn children. There are tangible things that we need to do so that our theology of everyone makes a little bit more sense so we can name specifically people that we would otherwise overlook if we only had a theology that tells us that yes, I'm accepted. Yes, it's true, but only half true. They, whoever they are for you, they are accepted too so that we may be complete, complete in Christ. Some of your translations may say mature and it might lead you to think we're talking about some kind of moral maturity, but that's not exactly what it has in mind here. There are some times in scripture where it's contrasting with childhood, but here it means something else. It's more like a building that as it's completed and finally ready to function the way that it should, it is perfected, it is complete, it is whole, it is done, it is finished. Or it's like a body 
That's Paul's favorite. A body that grows, grows up into Christ the head, that when it's done, when it's complete, when it's finished growing and joined to the head, it finally functions the way that it's supposed to, to do the things for which God created this body. That's what it's for. So it's kind of like this. In order to be complete in Christ, Jesus takes us into himself in such a way that we become joined together as a body. Jesus takes us in and we become part of the body of Christ. You see, even the word relationship doesn't really capture it because relationship kind of is like two. But this completeness is all. It is everyone. There is no way at the end of time or at the end of my life, whichever comes first, that I'll stand before the throne of grace before our Lord Jesus, all alone in an empty room and say to him, I am complete. That's impossible. There is no way to be complete in Christ without one another. No way. In fact, we can't practice completion. We can't work toward completion. We can't even long for completion without practicing the one another's, working for those who are far off and longing to be together with so many different kinds of others. Complete, all of us, everyone complete, all of us together. That's the vision, all of us together. Where? For what purpose? Paul says, in Christ, verse 28. Now, this very small phrase, I used to sign my emails this way. I thought it was cool. I thought maybe I'd send an email off to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and maybe they'll, you know, get curious. It didn't really work very well. There's other ways we're supposed to be reaching people. But in Christ, I mean, even when you look back to chapter 1, verse 22, and Paul's talking about how Jesus will present each of us spotless, blameless, without blemish before the throne of God, acceptable in his sight, in this heavenly courtroom where God is judge, we get a feeling for what in Christ really means. It's not just affiliation with him. It's not just relationship one-on-one. It's actually in his presence at the feet where he sits on the throne. This is a heavenly court. This is not a supreme court. Paul is not simply exercising his First Amendment freedom of speech. But he stands before the judge, the judge of the cosmos, and he declares this Christ. He is the one firstborn among all creation. It is he who is supreme. It is he in whom, in chapter 2, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because you could turn to any other, what he calls, plausible-sounding arguments in chapter 2, verse 4. Any of us could turn to plausible-sounding arguments in a human court. In the judgment of public opinion, we could turn to what sounds most plausible, But Paul says, there's really only one place to turn. It's to Jesus Christ himself. There's a part of my job 
that I despise with every fiber of my being. There comes a time when I'm sitting at a coffee shop across from someone who is in the process of walking away from Jesus. And I have been at that coffee shop table too many times. I can't stand it. It breaks my heart because as I watch people struggle, there is a theme. Something, I'm never sure what, something becomes difficult for them to turn their face toward Jesus for an answer to their life's question. In fact, what I see most often is people turning to anything but Jesus to answer a question. Difficult questions exist, but the answer is always the same. And I don't mean to sound trite, I don't mean to sound glib or cliche, but Jesus, in who he is, his earthly life, his love for us, his power and his desire to see justice, these become answers for us. They consume an entire field of vision. Unless you look away. And then you see something else. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this question that I've asked in this uh, congregation several times, but I, I just feel like I have to ask it again. What are you looking for? Do you like Jesus? What do you like about Jesus? If that question's difficult to answer, it's your invitation this morning to look into the gospels, the accounts, the first-hand accounts and experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ and to ask yourself, what is there to even like about this person by whose name we are called Christians? What do you like about him? I got to tell you, I, I like this guy. I like him. He loves us. That's a generic answer. But boy, if I could just show you the way he loves me. If I could show you the way he loves me, the kind of specificity, he knows my name. He knows what I go through. But it's not just that. I love the way that he loves people I don't love. When I know that I can't love him anymore, at least I know somebody does. I love the way he laughs. I love the jokes he tells. I love the power he displays. I love the justice that he will bring. I know that he died for me. I know that he rose from the grave. I know he's returning for me. And so we love him. I don't know what, else, what other answer to give to you this morning. He occupies the center part of our field of view, as it should be. He deserves all glory, praise, dominion, and authority. Do you know him? Do you know him? Such that you could talk about with the next generation of believers what you love about him. And if you do, are you willing to spend your life for this? You see, Paul in chapter two says, even those of you who've never met me, I work strenuously for you. And in the original language, I love the way it says, you haven't seen my face in the flesh. It's emphatic. 
He wants to be with them, but he's never met them before. They've only heard of him, but he longs to be with them. He cares for them, though he doesn't even know them. And he's willing, he's willing to be beat up for this, to lose his life for this, this Jesus. He becomes a servant of the gospel, he says so many times. And a servant of the body of Christ, he says so many times. There are three things that I want my children to know. Well, there's four. I want them to know that I love them unconditionally. But right up there with that, I want them to know that their mom and dad are willing to give everything to follow Jesus anywhere and proclaim him there. I want them to know that mom and dad are willing to do this. There's this Christian magazine that caught wind of the fact that Lisa and I are trying our very best uh, to be intentional with our kids, to help them think about the challenging issues that our world faces today. And they asked us this very interesting question. I think it's a really good question. What are the spiritual disciplines that your family practices that shape your kids to follow Jesus in a broken world? It's a very difficult question. And this is what I wrote. With all humility, many parents shy away from difficult topics with their children. All of us worry about robbing our kids of their innocence or exposing them to topics for which they are not ready. And yet, at the same time, none of us want our kids to wear naive rose-colored glasses and be unprepared for a world gripped by brokenness. So gradually and carefully, inviting children into your own grief and your own lament and your own botheration about the world's great problems, first from a cruising altitude, but gradually with increasing specificity, the kind which Jesus is able to say, them, I love them, in their specific situation. Doing so can augment the ways in which our children place their hope and trust in God. I want them to know that we are willing to go there, wherever that is. The second thing, I want my kids to live into their confession of faith and grow in their willingness to give their everything over to God. How do you explain that? Well, gosh, explain's not even the right word. How do you show this to kids? You can explain to them all day long. It's like saying, well, when you fall in love, it's like this. That doesn't really work. How do you show them? Put it this way. Those of you who've been coming to church for a while, you, you, you may know this story about a widow. She had two pennies left, and she gave them away at the synagogue. Jesus sees this, and he says, what kind of faith is that? Incredible, what kind of faith is that? Now, this could be a great story to guilt trip you into giving more, a higher percentage of what you have. That's not the point of it. I want you to imagine it this way. What if her niece saw that? What if her neighbors saw that? Giving the last bit of what she had. How do you show somebody that you really mean it so that they can mean it too? This was our Urbana experience. And I have a slide here to show you what we did. We sang songs like, withholding nothing withholding nothing. And then we met brothers and sisters that have withheld nothing for the sake of the gospel and for the church in these countries, these pillars, each one of them representing a country, one of the top 
most persecuted countries in the world, and we sat there and we prayed for an hour and a half, two hours, because when we said withholding nothing, and then we met someone withholding nothing, all our excuses melted away, and we were confronted with the choice to obey. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have had to pay a great cost to follow Jesus? I know that some of you have. I see your hands. We need you to tell that story again and again. We need you to remove our excuses and to rebuke our slothful ease. We need you to show us that the power of God is here to help his people stand firm in the faith. The next generation of Christians need to see what it means to give everything to him. Everything. And lastly, I want my kids to know that when we give our whole life over to God for the sake of the gospel and for the body of Christ, Jesus is there, right there at that moment, right there at that point. He is all sufficient for us as we give him everything that we have. This was Dr. King's experience one night, and I want to read to you his experience. I'll never forget one night very late. It was around midnight, and you can have some strange experiences at midnight. I'd been out meeting with the steering committee all that night and I came home and my wife was in the bed and I immediately crawled into bed to get some rest to get up early the next morning to try to keep things going. And immediately the telephone started ringing and I picked it up. On the other end was an ugly voice. That voice said to me in substance, he uses the N-word here, we are tired of you and your mess now. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. I'd heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and I tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I was frustrated and bewildered. And then I got up and went back to the kitchen and I started warming some coffee, thinking that coffee would give me a little relief. And then I started thinking about many things. I pulled back on the theology and philosophy that I had just studied in the universities, trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and the reality of sin and evil, but the answer didn't quite come there. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born about a month earlier. We have four children now, but we only had one then. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile and I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And she could be taken from me, or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on mama now. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself and I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. 
And oh yes, I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. I wanted tomorrow morning to be able to go before the executive board with a smile on my face. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And after he said these words, he quoted a song that lifted his spirits that I'd like to teach to you now. I've seen the lightning flashing I've heard the thunder roll I've felt sin's breakers dashing Trying to conquer my soul but I've heard the voice of my Jesus Telling me still to fight on He promised never to leave me Never to leave me alone Never alone Oh, never alone He promised never to leave me Never to leave me alone Brothers and sisters, are you wondering where he is today? I want to tell you all that I know. He stands in the midst of those who have given him everything. Do you love him? Do you like anything about him? Was that a difficult question for you this morning? This is your invitation to come and to know him, to know that he loves you. This is your invitation to come and to serve him, 
to find a way to give everything, to throw off all the things that would otherwise weigh you down. So brothers and sisters, will you pray with me? God of life, every breath we owe it to you. And we're thankful for it. We give you praise and thanks with every breath that we have. And this morning we renew the vow we make before you to go and to make you known throughout all the world that everyone, all your children may be complete before your throne, that we would stand together faithful as a people in your midst. God, make that true. Come and be with us. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God.